everyone, I'm Megan Teets, and this is Sorta Awesome. Welcome to the show that is all about uncovering the awesome in the everyday. Each week, my co-hosts and I give our favorite tips, share our best stories, and confide our true confessions as we invite you to join us in the pursuit of awesome. This is episode 72 of the show. This week, I'm joined by everyone's favorite Hollywood housewife, Laura Tremaine, and today we are highlighting the awesome things that can happen when you are willing to take a risk. We asked for the awesome community to share their own stories of taking risks on themselves, both personally and professionally. And oh my goodness, did you all answer that call well. We're going to hear from many of you today as we discuss risks involved with packing up and moving, or just starting a brand new path in life, or maybe seeing something that you want and deciding to make it happen. We'll get to your stories along with some of ours in just a few minutes. But first, let's start the show the way we always do with Awesome of the Week. Laura, what do you have for us this week? My Awesome of the Week will be most relevant to awesome listeners of a certain age. (laughs) Okay. Because what I want to talk about today is eye cream. Eye cream. I always am looking for an eye cream (laughs) to help my eye situation. So I can't wait to hear this. I feel like a lot of people are curious about eye cream. As much as I talk about moisturizer on my blog when I wrote about beauty things, one of the most asked questions I would get would be about eye cream. Because I think maybe as you age, that's the first place you kind of start to see fine lines Mm -hmm. or you know, your makeup kind of starts to run, that type of thing. Now, I have tried over the years so many eye creams. I mean, I have tried night creams, inexpensive creams, very expensive creams. I've tried all the things because I have dark circles under my eyes. Um, when I'm tired, it's really exaggerated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I've I, even when I was young and had zero wrinkles, I still cared about my eye area. So I've tried all kinds of things. And I I hate to report this, but I have never found a miracle eye cream. Oh, well, shoot. I know. That's not what people want to hear. Right. I I really haven't. Now, I haven't stuck with a regimen for like six months at a time or anything, but I have, you know, for the month or six weeks or whatever, given something a real go. And things do sometimes help with the under eye circles Things can really help with the moisturizing, but I've never found anything that actually erases those lines. Like this is just time marches on. Oh man, I feel like you're you're destroying a dream for me and a few other people right now. (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you that. If someone has a product that they actually do think works miracles, I want to hear about it. Truly, yes. You need to put it in the hangout group. You need to tag us on social media because I need to know. But I have tried a lot of things. Nothing is miraculous, but some are better than others. What I want to talk about today is Clinique eye cream. Mm -hmm. There's several different kinds. And I do have to disclose that I think I got my first kind in a, I think I got my first sample of Clinique eye cream in um, a glossy box, which is a, you know, monthly beauty subscription box. And glossy box sent me a a few to try for free. So I think my first one came into that. 
But in all my years of doing beauty product talking and writing and stuff, I've gotten a lot of things for free. I never talk about them or write about them if I don't really love it, if it's not something I wouldn't actually spend my money on. So I want to disclose that, but also say it doesn't really matter because I, I do like these products. So the reason that I like the Clinique eye cream, as opposed to some of the others, because there's, there's lots of really good stuff on the market, is I really like the consistency and I really like the price point. Okay, yeah. And those are two things that matters. Because what, what does matter about eye cream, if it doesn't completely erase your wrinkles, what it does do is it keeps the area moisturized. So I think what people don't like about when their eye area starts to change is that it gets dry. Mm -hmm. If they have makeup on, the makeup kind of settles into those creases and they think it makes them look older than they are, that kind of thing. So if you keep the area moisturized, that covers a lot of sins. Okay. I like that. Just that. And eye cream is a different consistency than say regular moisturizer. Like regular moisturizer kind of really soaks into your skin Mm -hmm. and you can't necessarily, um, you know, when you touch your skin later, you can't tell you have moisturizer on. Eye cream, although it soaks in a little bit, almost sort of sits on top in a way so that it really stays moisturized. You can, if you touch, if I touch around my eyes hours later, I can kind of feel that product there Yeah, Yeah. in a good way, you know. Mm -hmm. So the two that I've been using off and on are Clinique Pep Start eye cream. It's an acute orange little applicator thing. It's $26. It says that it is a three second eye fix, hydrates, brightens, and perks you right up. So at $26, some people might think, oh my word, that is not exactly what I would call cheap. But in the eye cream game, that is super reasonable. It's super reasonable. I love Clinique. I've, I mentioned this on our beauty show. I'm a longtime Clinique user, and I feel like they have a really good price point um, on a lot of their stuff. And the thing about eye cream, too, I haven't tried this particular one, Laura, but it seems like with eye cream, a little goes a long way. So you get a little oh, tube, yes. and it's $26, but it's going to last you a long time. No, it lasts months. Now, I'm not as much of a Clinique enthusiast as you are for their makeup products, but I do think that they have great skincare stuff. Yes, they do. Their moisturizer and all of that kind of stuff. Several of those are really, really good. The other one I like from Clinique is called All About Eyes. Mm -hmm. It's won like a bunch of words and that kind of thing. For years, yes. It's a little bit more expensive at starting at $32 and then it goes up depending on the size of the little jar that you get. Mm -hmm. But that is a good price point for this product. Eye creams can run up to a hundred bucks or more. Easily. Yes. You know, they're crazy expensive. So anyway, I do like them. People ask me about eye cream all the time. You know, I think because of the price point of, of most eye creams, of all eye creams really, people are like nervous to invest in them if they don't know that it's really great. That's right. I think that's why people ask more about them, whereas mm-hmm. people are more likely to take um, a risk on moisturizer, like regular moisturizer or or lipstick or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they don't want to sink their money into this tiny jar of cream unless they know. So I'm telling you, if you're a an eye cream newbie, a skincare newbie, I do think Clinique is a great place to start. I love that. That's so great. And yes, like I said, I'm a huge long time, lifetime even fan of Clinique stuff. So really love that. 
What do you have? So my awesome of the week this week is a thing that I just found a few weeks ago called Zen Mix. Zen, Z-E-N, Zen Mix. It is a really cool ambient sound generator. So what? I don't know what you're saying. (laughs) So here's the background on it. I'm going to I'm going to back up a few beats to explain this whole thing. So first of all, I heard about it because I subscribe to a weekly email from a company called Music for Makers. Music for Makers is this really cool website where you can buy royalty free music to use with your whatever project you're working on, whether it's videos, podcasts, um, anything that you're making that you need some royalty free music. They have a fantastic library, and if you become a member, you can use any of the music from their library. Well, they also send out a weekly free download. So I had signed up for this email months ago, and then a couple of weeks ago, Logan, the guy behind Music for Makers, sent out an email that he had created this ambient sound generator. And I knew I had to check it out because, here's the thing, I have been working at coffee shops and in public places a lot more lately than I ever have, which is great and wonderful. And I like to get out of the house to work, but I cannot work if there are conversations going on around me because the compulsion to eavesdrop is unbearable to me. Like I can't concentrate if people are, I literally cannot tune it out. When people are talking around me uh, at a coffee shop, you know, if people are, you know, discussing their health problems or they just took their child to college for the first time. I just want to turn around and be like, I want to hear the story. Tell the whole thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're so much nicer than me. This is why I cannot work at coffee shops either. But it's not because I want them to tell me the story. It's because I need them to shut up. <laughs> well, Zen Mix can help you on either end of the spectrum if you want to hear more of the stories around you or less. You can pop in your earbuds. Here's the thing, too. I have plenty of writer friends who can put in earbuds, put on headphones, and turn on music with words like regular music and work. I also cannot do that because I just get distracted with listening to music and then I get nothing done. So when I saw that Zen Mix had come out and that it would create ambient sound in the background, I thought, I've got to check this out. And um, Logan talked about in this email that he sent out that he had really looked at what kind of sounds can help you to focus in, whether you need to get work done or whether you just want some background noise. Maybe you're meditating, whatever your need for a little bit of background noise is, um, he created this, this site called ZenMix. On ZenMix, you can go in and choose from six different kinds of sound. There's instrumental music, rainfall, nature sounds, water, kind of like a fountain bubbling kind of water, night sounds or waves crashing. The really cool thing is you can play more than one type of those ambient sounds at once. So let's say if you like really like the the sound of nighttime sounds and you also want to feel like you're at the beach and you want to hear waves crashing, you can play them both together. And on the site, there's a slider under each of the sounds icons so you can adjust it. So say you really wanted to get nighttime sound, but you wanted to sound like maybe there was some far away waves crashing. (laughs) You can turn up the nighttime sound and turn down the waves crashing. (laughs) I want to pretend I'm exactly one mile from the beach. (laughs) Then this is perfect for you. Okay. Um, Okay. So it plays through a web browser. You don't have to download anything. It plays right from the web. You can play it on your your desktop machine or on mobile. Um, So yeah, like I said, you could use it for meditation for when you're working. 
um, in the nursery or your child's room at night if they need a little background noise. It's really perfect to turn on. The site is zenmix.io. And I will put some more information about this in the show notes, but it seriously has been making such a difference for me, especially when I am out of the house trying to get work done, but I need to tune out the world around me. What are you, what do you listen to? Like what sounds do you play? I like the nature one mostly. I really do. Sometimes I will add in some, some waves if I'm feeling a little beachy. (laughs) I've tried the instrument, the instrumental music one and it's okay. I I like it. Okay. But there's something about the nature one. I don't know. It speaks to my inner hippie, I guess my inner granola girl. So it's been really great. So, okay. Now, Laura, last time you were on Sort of Awesome, you got to announce to the awesomes about this amazing new project that you started. And definitely anytime any of us start a new project, there's some risk involved, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot of risk involved. So you are about a month in now creating and working on this project, getting it out into the world. I would love to hear from you before we start to hear from some of our awesomes who have shared about the risks they have taken. I would love to hear from you. How are you feeling? Tell us all about your feelings at this point. What have been some of the biggest surprises? Um, are there any ways that this whole experience has turned out to be different than what you would thought than what you thought it was going to be? Just tell us everything. Well, first of all, I want to say we, we launched this thing into the world, you and me, Megan. <laughs> yes, that's true. It's true. <laughs> um, But we did. We launched a new podcast where I'm the host. Megan is behind the scenes producing called Smartest Person in the Room. It launched on August 23rd. And we're starting off with a series on Hollywood. So I kind of can't believe that we actually did it. I know. (laughs) Right before we launched, there were many texts back and forth like, oh, my gosh, this is really happening. We're really doing this. There might have been a text from me that's like, should we push? Maybe we shouldn't do this. (laughs) That's right. I remember that. What's the question? How do I feel? It was, it was really scary, I think. I mean, it it wasn't as scary as it must have been for you to launch Sorta Awesome. So the big benefit I had is that you blazed the trail first with launching Sorta Awesome. I got to practice for, you know, almost a year and a half being on this show what it's like to hear your voice on air, you know, to have, it's just, I feel like as long as I blogged and as long as I have been on social media, there is really a different level of vulnerability in having your voice heard in people's car and kitchen and life. It is so true. Yeah. It's really different. I don't think that it's even more necessarily, I, I poured myself into my blog and some of the things that I wrote, but it is really intimate. It is. It is. That is so true. So much different than the written word, both as the person whose voice is going out into the world. And then also I have found, maybe you have found the same thing for people who are listening. I know when I listen to a podcast regularly, I feel a deep connection with the people's voices I hear regularly through my earbuds or in the car, like you said. So that can be really scary and intimidating to be like, no, now I'm going to be that person, right? Well, I try I try not to think about it too much. I, in both online work that I've done for a long time and now in podcasting, I literally do not think about the audience 
when I'm doing it. Right. Now, obviously, when you think about what kind of show you want to make or what kind of thing you want to write or whatever, maybe you think about your audience in a bigger picture way. But when I'm actually doing the work, I will freak myself out if I think like everybody's going to hear me mispronounce this word. Sure, (laughs) sure. Yeah. So I don't do that. Um, On Sort of Awesome, I have the benefit of co-hosts and a main host, you, that mostly drives the conversation. I get to participate, but it's not really mainly me. So I was really worried on Smartest Person in the Room, me being the sole host. In fact, I thought I wanted co-hosts and whatever just because I was feeling nervous about it, but really the format for the show and what I wanted it to do, it does work best just one-on-one. I've done all these interviews in person, which is another big difference from Sorta Awesome. Yes, it is. And so just logistically, just me and my microphone and the person that I'm interviewing, it really works best for to just be that way. Luckily, though, I mean, I'm asking some questions, but the guest is the one who really is providing a lot of the words and a lot of the interest. So I've sort of just approached it as having a chat with these people. I... Personally, I'm getting to ask people questions that, you know, even if I knew that person, I might not would feel comfortable asking them at a dinner party. But in the context of an interview, I'm like, tell me exactly what you do. (laughs) Right, exactly. And I think that has been something that I've enjoyed most listening to Smartest Person in the Room. I've known you for years. Longtime listeners know that Laura and I have been friends since high school. So I've known you for years. And I know that in real life conversation, you have that amazing gift of being able to pull information out of people in a way that they don't feel like they're being railroaded or they're being pressured to say something. You have you have a great way of talking to people, of asking questions, and even better, of asking follow-up questions to kind of take the conversation to the next step. So I have loved, just as a listener, your ability to do that because then we can really dig in deep with these amazingly smart people and find out some really incredible things that most of us would never have learned otherwise. Thank you very much. It's been very fun. It's been a surprise, actually. I didn't. I never wanted to have my own podcast. I never thought this was going to unfold in the way that it has. And it's just been super fun. It's really been um, kind of a surprise of my life, actually. I love it. I love it. And it's been so much fun to work together on all of this, too. So, well, we reached out and asked the awesomes to share some of their stories of taking risks in life. I really do believe that if you ask almost anybody about a risk that they've taken, we all have a story in this realm. We asked about personal risks, professional risks. So we put out this call and said, leave us a message letting us know how you would finish this sentence. I took a risk on myself when I, and then we just left it up to you guys to fill in the blanks. Like I said, we got tons of messages in response because I think people really are excited to share their own stories of taking risks, knowing that a lot of times the risks that other people have taken kind of do pave the way. They give us the courage and the the momentum to believe that we also can take a risk on something in our lives for something that we've been wanting to do. 
So as I listened through to all of the messages, and I did listen to all of them, you all were so gracious and generous in providing these for us, I realized that there was kind of three broad categories when it came to taking risks. The first category that I noticed were the pack up and move kind of risks where something happened in someone's life and they decided I'm just going to pick up and I'm going to go. So let's listen to a few of these pick up and move stories from the awesomes. Hello, Megan and Laura. I took a risk on myself when I signed a contract for a job in London in March 2014. At the time, I was pretty unhappy living in Paris and had been in France for about two and a half years. I had two weeks to pack up my life there and move to London, which was a city I'd never lived in before, and this was all on the basis of a Skype interview. Ultimately, the job was a disaster, but moving back to my home country is one of the best decisions I've made. Hi, Megan and Laura. I took a risk when I was in my mid-twenties. I uh, had always wanted to see more of the United States and I grew up around Boston and I'd been out of college for a couple of years and I bought a van and I got a dog and I took off cross-country and I spent three months traveling on my own around the U.S. So that was my big risk and it uh, led me here to living in New Orleans. Thanks. I took a risk on myself when I moved to a new city, jobless, for a guy. Not so crazy, except I'd always believed that moving for a guy was a bad idea. But it's always different when it's yourself, right? So to make ends meet, I started teaching piano, which as a performer was also something I had said I would never do. So the biggest surprise of all, Six months later, I had broken up with the one, but discovered I loved teaching piano. I'm now in my fourth year and teach almost 50 students, which I think is sorta awesome. I took a risk when I was 27 and I was single. Um, I had a steady job as a high school counselor and I decided to leave that for a year and go volunteer in a poor area of our country in Appalachia. And um, eight years later, I'm still here working for that same organization. Um, So it paid off in the end, and I love my job. Hello, this is Jessica in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I took a risk on myself when I was in college and decided to study abroad. And I can remember thinking like, well, I just have to figure this stuff out. And if I can do this in another country, I can do it anywhere, kind of feeling about myself and it was fantastic and I would recommend it to any college student. Okay, I loved hearing those pack up and move stories, Lara, because I think, again, this is something that a lot of people can identify with. It made me think of how uh, when Kyle and I were really still kind of newlyweds, we had only been married for about two years, maybe two and a half years at the time when Kyle was really starting his career in coaching college football. We had been at our uh, our alma mater where we both got our undergraduate degrees for, for a few years as he kind of got his feet on the ground and started learning the ropes of coaching. And then out of the blue, overnight, this opportunity came for him to have a position at TCU, at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. 
which was only about um, two and a half, three hours from where we were living at the time. And within the span of one week, literally one week, we got the call. We went down to Fort Worth for him to interview. We found an apartment the next day. We went back and packed up and moved almost all of our stuff down there. I had to stay behind for a few weeks to finish up a few things. But it was a whirlwind. We had never been, like we we grew up in Oklahoma. We got married in Oklahoma. We, I mean, Texas isn't that far away, but in a lot of ways it felt like we were just kind of packing up and starting out on our lives together as a family, just the two of us. And it was scary. And some things happened along the way, like I got my car broken into because I left my purse in the front seat of my car like any small town girl would do. <laughs> and like, yeah, that's not the thing that you do in the big city. So we had some learning things to go through like that. But it turned out to be such a great thing for our young marriage and our family life as we were starting together, not to mention a great thing for Kyle's career. And I started teaching once we moved down to Texas. It was such a formative time because we were willing to take the risk and just go. Like we got the call and we were like, let's just go and we'll just do it. So Laura, I know you also famously have a take a risk and make a move story. Remind us of the circumstances that inspired that risk moment in your life. Well, I feel a little bit like I've talked this to death, but I do feel like in the whole of my life, it was the biggest turning point and may always end up being the biggest turning point is that I moved from Oklahoma, where I grew up in a small town, went to the University of Oklahoma, and then I moved to California sight unseen. I had never been to Los Angeles. I didn't have a job and I didn't know anybody when I moved here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which, which is just so stupid on its face. <laughs> but it was an absolute pivotal milestone moment. I was in a place where I could take a risk on myself. I was 22. You know, I had a degree. I had nothing to lose, really. I sold my car so that I had a little bit of cash. It was the time to do it if you're going to do something like that. Although I encourage anybody to do that kind of thing if they can, even if you have more complications than I did. I really think that something like that can change the entire trajectory of your life in the best way. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, sometimes sometimes it's easier in life than others. For example, you were, like you said, you were young, you were single, you were kind of setting the, the trajectory for your own life. You didn't have a family, children, spouse, those types of things to take into consideration. I mean, sometimes down the road, that's exactly what you have to take into consideration. And again, thinking about our own family's life after Kyle had been coaching college football for over a decade, we had to have a really tough conversation about how how difficult the coaching life is for family life. And like, we kind of came to a fork in the road. Like, are we going to continue down this path of Kyle doing something that he was passionate about and that he loved, but at the same time kept him away from home so much. And so he took the risk of leaving behind that career and starting a career in investments. And, and it's been a wild and crazy road since then, but there was, there was, it was more of a complicated decision to pick up and move at that time because there were so many other factors to consider. So, so that's like the opposite type of risk than I feel like 
most people talk about, because a lot of times when we talk about taking a risk on ourselves, you're talking about following your passion. Mm -hmm. And in Kyle's situation, he took the opposite and he left behind his passion for the bigger story of his family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a risk because at the time when he did it, that wasn't his skill set or whatever. He'd really been training in this other thing, this other career for so many years. So that's like the opposite type of risk that reaps a different sort of reward. So it's interesting to hear that, actually. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about it, but it is the inverse of the usual story because he did love coaching so much. But at the same time, he was, I mean, our kids, this was just when the girls were around. We didn't have the twins yet, but um, he just never saw them. He had never been to our oldest daughter's, any of her birthday parties. Um, our younger daughter was born in the football season, so I knew there was no chance of, <laughs> of him ever being around then. Um, so it was a huge risk. And when we had that really tough conversation, he was like, I'm a football coach. I don't know what else I would even do. So yeah, it was a risk to say, I'm going to leave behind this thing I've been doing for over a decade. I'm just going to try something new, but it's on the on the other end of it, worth it for protecting our family life, our marriage and our family life. So yeah, sometimes those stories move you in one direction and sometimes it's in another direction. And that kind of leads into this next set of stories from our awesomes about taking risks. And I thought all of these have to do with this idea of just starting a new path in life, kind of like Kyle leaving one career to start another. I have several friends who have done that. Once family life began, they realized that the thing that they were doing was not what they wanted to do or what they could continue to do. And so they just started over from scratch. So let's hear what some of our awesomes had to say about that. I took a risk on myself when I left my job as a teacher which was the only profession I'd ever known, to seek a job in book editing and publishing, despite having no experience and knowing very little about the field. I believed this would be a better fit for my gifts, my long-term career, and my future family. So with my husband's blessing, I quit my job without another one lined up, totally not in my comfort zone as a type A ISFJ. I ended up interning at a magazine, which opened up doors for my writing, and a few months later I got a job as a copy editor at a major Christian publisher. I can't imagine a career that's a better fit for my strengths and personality, and every single day I am so glad I took this risk. I took a risk on myself when I turned in my application and became a substitute teacher. Even though people told me that was crazy and nobody liked it, I went ahead and did it because I really felt the need to reinsert myself back in the world when my youngest started kindergarten. It has brought me so much happiness, so much purpose. It feeds my need for words of affirmation and it just creates some new purpose in my life and happiness. That spills over on my family and affects all of us and it is something I am so grateful I took a risk on. Hi, Megan and Laura. This is Anisha. Uh, I love the show. And about a year ago, I decided to take a risk on myself and apply to graduate school. Even though I was really happy with my life and my husband and I were planning a wedding, I just felt like this was the time to really invest in myself while I had the chance. And even though it was kind of scary and, and it felt a little bit selfish, I really thought it was the right thing to do for me. So, you know, flash forward, um, and I'm now three weeks into business school. I love it. I already know it was the right choice for me. And I'm just, I'm proud of myself for letting that happen. Um, because I think it's really easy to find reasons to not 
take a risk on yourself. And once I did, and I know it was the right decision. My name is Amber, and I took a risk on myself when I left a career in radio after 12 and a half years in the business. And it was a terrifying moment, but both personally and professionally, the job I moved into was the best thing I could have done for myself. And to this day, I wouldn't be on the journey I'm on now if I hadn't have made that initial move. Hi, Megan and Laura. This is Becca Schwartz up in Michigan. I took a risk on myself a few years ago when we decided to jump headfirst into hobby farming and now are farming on a larger scale with the hope of making it a primary source of income for our family. Um, I initially was a city girl that knew nothing about farming and now I find myself helping goats birth, pulling babies out of pigs, the whole nine yards. Um, you name it on a farm, I've probably done it. Um, I am just learning on the job and loving every minute of it. I really feel like I found my true life's calling that blends my passion for ethical raised food with my love of animals and um, an occupation that involves our whole family. So it has really been a dream come true that I didn't know was a dream until I took that risk. Okay, I loved hearing those. I especially loved hearing from Becca with her hobby farm story. (laughs) That is a huge risk to be like, we're just going to go start farming. I can't imagine. For a long time, I had this dream that I wanted to do like some homesteading stuff with goats and chickens and cows and stuff and had to have, um, let's, let's be realistic conversation with Kyle. He was like, you you don't really actually like animals is the thing. (laughs) I was like, well, I guess you're right. (laughs) It's not a risk we should take now or probably ever. But I have never dreamed about farming. mm, Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. Growing up in Oklahoma, you would think that was sort of woven into our fabric, but not all of us. (laughs) No, my fabric does not weave that way. (laughs) Well, when I was listening to these awesomes and their stories about starting a new path. I thought about this quote from Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, which is a fantastic book to kind of get your wheels turning about what you can do with the dreams and the creativity that you've been given. So she wrote in Big Magic, do whatever brings you to life then. Follow your own fascinations, obsessions, and compulsions. Trust them. Create whatever causes a revolution in your heart. I love that so much, and it really spoke to this thing that I did, which was to consciously choose to close my blog, to leave behind writing, which I had been doing for for years, really, looking back on you know school and getting a degree in English and all of those things. Writing was something that I was really comfortable with doing, but to purposefully end that chapter and start a new chapter in podcasting, which I did not know anything about at the time, but I was fascinated with the medium. I listened to podcasts all the time. They brought so much joy to my life. I had so many thoughts about the podcasts themselves and the things that I learned on them. And the more I listened, the more I realized I was just so compelled to start my own thing. Even though at the time, I mean, this was only you know a year and a half ago. I feel like since then, a lot of kind of like get your podcast up and going courses and um, seminars and those types of things have come out. But at the time when I was putting Sort of Awesome together at the beginning of 2015, I really felt like I was just piecemealing it all together, take a little take a little um, advice from this person, a little insight from this person, and kind of make it all work. And 
really and truly had no idea what I was doing when we started Sort of Awesome, but I knew that I was so fascinated with this medium and so obsessed with the possibility of what you can do here in creating a podcast that I just, I was truly compelled to do it. So I wonder if yours, if your thing with writing and podcasting was, was similar or along the same lines? Well, no, because I listened to podcasts, but I, I did not, it never crossed my mind to have my own or even to be on one in terms of sort of awesome until you proposed it. I mean, it didn't even, I live in a world of film and TV I love the world of writing. I had never given much thought to radio, which is essentially, you know, what this is. I'm also not naturally blessed with the voice that you have. Like, I think that it is such a wonderful confluence that you were drawn to the medium and you have (laughs) the absolute best kind of voice for it. In fact, I've had to kind of get over my voice in the last year and a half in order to participate in the medium but no it was a it it was a risk in lots of ways but pretty low stakes for me and pretty big stakes for you i feel like because your name is on everything um you had written a book at this point you had you had had you know you had really forged this whole other thing and now you changed direction and i know there were people in your life who were kind of like what what are you doing exactly? Because this path is already grooved and going. And right. you know, why are you stopping? How did you deal with that? Or how, was there pushback in your life that were like, Megan, this is not real. What are you doing? <laughs> I don't know that when it came to the podcast, I don't know that I got any outright pushback. I do still, even to this day, I run into people who are like, so are you still writing? And I'm just like, no, not, haven't been for a while now. <laughs> not writing anymore. I'm doing this other crazy thing. Um, So I don't think that anybody was directly like, you know, spoke about it negatively. I do think there were a lot of questions and a lot of, oh, well, that'll be a nice thing to do. And, you know, as much as people who are fans of the medium of podcasting, like we talk about it, like it's just like a thing, you know, in our culture that everybody knows about. I also still run into people who are like, huh, I've heard of podcasts, but I don't get how they work. And so there is some of that, too. And that makes you start to question, is, is this a totally crazy thing to do? I think, I think more than the external pushback, I also I had to work through a lot of internal stuff, a lot of questions and doubts, as much as my passion and my enthusiasm for podcasting and for having my own podcast really propelled me forward. I will tell you every single step along the way. I've been like, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? How can I make this better? Are people, I mean, what, you know, I I think a lot about the audience in terms of what people are getting out of this. And I've told you before, I've told um, other friends that Literally every single week when a new episode of Sword Awesome drops, I always, every week, this far into it, I still think this is probably going to be the episode that everyone hates and everyone unsubscribes. This is it. Sword of Awesome will be over <laughs> after this I week. don't, I do not see that happening. It is funny, though, to live in this time of public, of such public art making. Mm. So like historically, always there have been artists who just toiled in obscurity or, you know, 
people didn't understand why they holed up in a house and painted or wrote or whatever. And they were sort of considered the town eccentrics, maybe even the town crazies. I mean, that has been true since the beginning of time. So true. And now with the internet, you're able to live out your art online. No matter what you're doing, you can show it, you can sell it, you can express it. So that's wonderful. I mean, that's truly like world-changing wonderful. Mm -hmm. But there's still sort of, um, I don't want to say a stigma, but there's still like a little bit of condescension. I feel like for, for people who are putting their art on the internet all the time. So, and I mean the condescension from, from others maybe who don't understand. So like you were at the forefront of kind of, kind of the blogging revolution. So I'm assuming you got a little bit of the, oh, that's sweet for you yes. that you blog. Mm-hmm. And then you were also pretty much on the forefront of the podcasting revolution where you might've gotten the same. And I, I see a little bit online people who are maybe selling their art on Etsy or whatever it is that they're doing. And people who are outsiders maybe think that that's not a quote-unquote real thing. Right. Yes, that's right. When they're not realizing that, A, that's totally real. B, some of these people are making a killing. Absolutely, yes. Not having to have a storefront or anything who are able to sell online. You know, I do feel like we have not, I think we're starting to, but I don't think that the culture as a whole, at least American culture, has made the shift to internet work is real work. I agree. Wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. And that and that makes people fearful because mm-hmm. if you live in a community or a group of friends who kind of roll their eyes at that sort of thing, then you might be like really scared to be like, oh, but I kind of want to start whatever because you're like, oh, everybody's going to think I'm stupid. Well, and to tie back to what you were saying about the public nature of it, on the other end of it, like if you fail, which listen, if you're going to take risks in life, there's going to be failure along the way, both big and small. But if you're doing it in a public venue, then you have to factor in that thing. It's out in public. And if if whatever happens and and you end up closing up shop, whatever that means for you, then there's the added thing of, and everybody knows that that is a thing that I had to quit, decided to quit, whatever. And so the... the the risk of people seeing the whole thing play out in public, that's a real one too. That is a real one. I do think I am lucky, (laughs) hashtag lucky, to live (laughs) in Los Angeles where artistic failure is so normal. Right, yes. That it just doesn't get the judgment that I think it does other places. Like if your show gets canceled or you're, Thing gets terrible ratings or your piece of art doesn't sell. I truly feel like here people are like, yeah, you know, they're like, oh, that sucks. We've been there. Yes. There's not the judgment. I mean, everybody in Los Angeles who's working on art has had epic and minor fails like all the time. It really is like not a thing to talk about at the dinner table. Like at a dinner party, you're going to hear somebody talk about they got fired from their pilot. They okay. got their show canceled. They've been trying to get a script made for five years. That is super commonplace and everyone just nods along. Whereas I I feel like maybe at 
other in other parts of the country, that kind of talk would be so shame filled, and people would be like, "Why are you bringing that up? What are you doing?" Right, right. That's that's a very good point. But living in an area here, like it's not, it's still a risk. Don't get me wrong, but I do feel like in some ways. I benefit from the idea of, well, just try this thing. Meh. Yes, that is so true. That is so true. And but and so sometimes, I mean, with any, when we were, we're kind of talking in the context of your, you know, either artistic or creative endeavors, but really, no matter what, if it's a personal risk, if it's a professional risk, you have to have a lot of conversations with yourself where you figure out, is it worth it, this this possibility of failure? And that is such a great point that the culture that surrounds you, whether it's your family culture, your faith culture, the part of the country that you live in, that's going to, some of those voices are going to be louder than others, depending on the, the conversations that are going on around you. So that is really true. Well, one thing too, that I noticed as I was listening through to these stories from Awesome, sharing how they have taken risks, is this idea that sometimes you have to take a risk just to make something happen. Sometimes taking a risk looks like being really super proactive, asking for what you want, and believing that you can do the thing that you want to do. Sometimes that is a professional pursuit. Sometimes it's a personal relationship. And this last group of awesomes sharing their stories, all of them in some way decided they, they were going to make something happen. Hi, Megan and Laura. This is Jennifer uh, coming from the Seattle area. I took a risk on myself when I asked a organization in New Orleans to give me a job and housing <laughs> uh, when I was moving there for graduate school and I'd read about them in Time Magazine and it worked. I got a job. It was great. And uh, more recently, I did the same thing with another company when I saw a niche uh, that was unfilled and so I told them that they had a gap and that they needed to hire me to take care of it. And I set my own pay and created my own job. It's, it's really worth it to ask <laughs> when you see a hole or you find a place that you want to work. It, what are they going to say? No? I mean, that's fine. <laughs> you keep doing what you're doing then and look for another job. I took a risk on myself when I signed up for um, a local sewing club at a fabric store. And through that, I was able to um, meet a couple of people from my favorite pattern company. And now um, I get to review their patterns on my blog. And it's been really exciting. Hi, Awesomes. This is Jen Shahada coming to you all the way from Calgary, Alberta in Canada. And the risk I took on myself this year was letting myself be seen through my writing. I got C's on all my papers in nursing school and for a long time I believed that my writing wasn't worth sharing and it wasn't worth reading. And my word for the year this year was courage and so I've taken a huge step and shared things even though I didn't have the confidence to do it. And it's been an amazing way to connect with different people and to learn more about myself. Hi, Megan and Laura. This is Alyssa in Portland, Oregon, and I wanted to tell you about a time I took a risk on myself. When I was a new mom, I was living in an area without any other mom friends, and I couldn't find a small group that was gonna fit with my schedule. So I looked at my son and started talking to strangers. It was scary, but I started approaching mother moms maybe at baby yoga or at the playground or even at the doctor's office or the grocery store and I just started saying hey a couple of us are starting a mom's group would you like to come to my house next Friday 
What I didn't tell anybody was that the couple of us starting that mom's group consisted of me and my six-week-old son. It was really scary to invite a bunch of strangers over to my house, but that first Friday, I had 12 moms show up with their babies, and we started a group that continued meeting for five years and still gets together on occasion. It was a big risk and socially very scary, but I'm so, so glad I did it. Hey, Laura and Megan, it's Oshita Moore. I just want to respond to your request for stories of risk. The biggest risk that I take is one that happens periodically, and it's when I notice a woman who is doing something amazing, who I really respect, who I want to learn from. I reach out to her and ask her if she would teach me, um, mentor me, or give me like her best advice so that I can sort of do what she does and every single time it's terrifying for me because I don't think that she would want to help me or I think I'm bothering her um, but every single time it's paid off and it just has been so good for me just professionally but it's also been really good for me and reframing the way that I think of my relationship with women and just sort of pushing past that like scarcity fear that we all kind of have so that's my story of risk Okay, I love all of those stories. I particularly love Alyssa's story about how she started that mom's group by just kind of faking it, like telling people, I'm starting a mom's group, you want to come? And then it was just like her, that was just, she was starting that week. And (laughs) then she kind of made it sound like, I've got this thing going on, you want to come be a part of it? So sometimes the thing that you want to get, you have to get take risks to get there. You and I have talked about several times as we've talked about friendship and friendships in adulthood and how complicated and how tricky those can be that you cannot like wait around for friendship to happen. And for women, especially, I think we feel this more, the risks that are involved in trying to start a new friendship. And you kind of alluded to this earlier, that when you moved to Los Angeles, this was a thing that you faced and that you had to take some risks to make some friendships happen. I did. And some of my risks were big fat fails. When I was uh, working at MTV, I didn't have very many friends. I had a lot of people I worked with, but I saw that there were people my age, similar to me in other parts of the building, like who worked on other shows or whatever. And I was like, we can be friends, but there's no other way that we would necessarily be in contact, you know, except like at the vending machine or something. Right. right. (laughs) So I started this group called Let's Be Friends. (laughs) Um, And just try, it was almost like a happy hour type of group where like, let's just meet for drinks after work, whatever. And that's, as I'm saying it now, I'm kind of like, that's kind of a good idea. I wish I had stuck with it because we did it three or four times. I invited people, like I said, who I had seen or had heard of or whatever that, you know, we might all hit it off. And we just didn't. We didn't gel. Everybody was busy or people didn't come or whatever happened. I did it a few times and and then I just dropped it because it it wasn't working. I kind of wish I'd stuck it out because I do think sometimes those things, if I'd done it weekly for six months or something, I do think those things kind of shake out in an awesome way. And I just didn't, I was young and sort of insecure about that it wasn't working. And so I just quit. Oh, and this other group I tried, this was later after I was married. It's actually funny now that I'm thinking about it, this kind of seems like a precursor to smartest person in the room. And I'd never made that connection until now. But anyway, I really wanted to learn stuff. Like I was like, there is stuff we all need to know. (laughs) (laughs) 
this was at a time when like um, digital cameras, the DSLRs were like kind mm-hmm. of made available to everyone. Mm-hmm. Moms were buying them, whatever. I don't even think I was a mom yet when I did this or I was an early mom. Anyway, I, I tried to get an expert person to come in and teach me and a group of my friends how to use our camera. Right, right. Yeah. And then I did another one where I tried to get um, this woman who's a chef that I know to like teach us some, uh, just like a couple of easy meals. So I was like, we all need to learn the things. So I like, <laughs> it is a precursor come. to smart sports in the room. That is so funny. Isn't that funny? Yes. I never even thought about it until now. Anyway, same as the Let's Be Friends group. We did it a few times. It, those things actually worked, but I don't know. I, I just was like, I don't, this is, it's too much, whatever. I quit that as well. And again, now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, oh, that was sort of a fun idea. You should have kind of kept doing that. <laughs> Except now I'm doing smartest person in the room, which is right. a, a version of that. Right, right, right. That is so funny. Well, in thinking about two personal relationships, and, and again, we kind of alluded to this with the way internet culture is now. I'm thinking about my sister and other people that I know that are single who are dating in the context of the online dating world and how, you know, when Emily was on the show over the summer, she talked about the fact that that is the vast majority of dating relationships are forming in the online context too. And that there is some risk involved. There's some risk involved with putting yourself out into uh, the dating world that way, whether you're, you know, on eHarmony or Match or whatever. There's even if you just feel like it's a little bit of risk, it's still kind of like making yourself a little bit vulnerable. Like I would like to meet somebody. So I'm going to put myself out into the world this way. So it's so interesting how you know, sort of online and internet culture keeps converging with these risk-taking things and how a lot of the times it can end up with some really fun, exciting, life-changing results. So, Can I tell a story, a risk-taking story on my friend Kate? I don't think she will mind. Please do. My friend Kate lives in the South. She, like any good Southern girl, is obsessed with football. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lot of football talk on this episode. and you know my sister is really obsessed with football I'm around a lot of women who are very into football so it's not surprising to me and especially in the community where she lives it's not surprising that the women are very into football but I mean Kate is into football like a way unknown to others like she knows all the stats all the plays all the players I mean it is it is really intense well she wanted, She decided to take her knowledge, and this is a big risk in her small town in the South, and she decided to be a football coach. Oh, my gosh. Whoa, that's like unheard of in the it South or un- anywhere, I think. It is, un- it is a gender role that is unheard of. Yeah. And, I mean, she has a playbook and everything. So what was available to her, you know, in the moment was like a kid's league. It, you know, wasn't like she... <laughs> woke up one day and became a college football coach. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) But, you know, she started with a kids league, which is still risky because of sort of that gender bending idea. But it's, you know, it's less risky because maybe you're thinking, oh, it's just kids. Like, who cares? She's super knowledgeable. Oh, no, people cared. Oh, I bet they did. I bet they did. Because in that area of the country, the little league is what leads to the high school, is what leads to the college, is Mm -hmm. what leads to the pros. Right. And so it's a real thing. And she got pushback from other women. I mean, it was 
Like, how do you know what you're doing? And um, I'm going to tell you right now that those kids went on to win their championship. Wow. That's so awesome. I love it. I love it. It was awesome. And she did it for a couple of years. And then she had to take a break because, I mean, it it was hard. It's Mm. hard to, I think, every day be doing what you love. This was a volunteer position, I'm pretty sure. So like doing what you love and what you're actually very good at. And even in your success, for people to be like, you don't belong here. Oh, that is such a real thing. Again, personally, professionally, I'm sure lots of people have stories about that. So definitely part of the whole endeavor of taking risks. Well, we have loved so much hearing your stories. I know, I know for a fact, there are other people who are in the awesome community who have some great stories about risk, but they did not want to send a voice message in because like Laura said, it's kind of a vulnerable thing to to have people tune into your voice. So we would love to catch up with you on social media so you can share with us some of your stories, the time that you took a risk on yourself in your professional or personal life. Come tell us about it. Laura, remind us where we can find you all around the web these days. You can always find me by going to hollywoodhousewife.com. That links out to my Twitter where I'm Laura Tremaine and my Instagram where I'm laura.tremaine. Also at hollywoodhousewife.com, you can sign up for my monthly secret posts, which is an email that I send out every month with books I'm reading, some personal tidbits, podcasts to listen to, all kinds of goodies come in my secret posts. I'd love it if you'd sign up. But most importantly, right now, we are so excited about our podcast, Smartest Person in the Room, where you can hear more of my Oklahoma tinny voice (laughs) there. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash smartest person in the room or sign up for our newsletter at smartest person in the room.com. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sorta Awesome Meg. You can follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. The show is also on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created by me, Megan Teets, and is produced each week in collaboration with Kelly Gordon, Rebecca Hoffert, and Laura Tremaine. Visit us on the web at SortaAwesomeShow.com, where you can sign up for the show's newsletter, connect with the Sorta Awesome community, and find show notes for each episode of Sorta Awesome. Music is provided by the band Prager. Find out more at PragerMusic.com. We'll meet you back here next time as we discover, explore, and discuss all the things that make life sorta amazingly awesome. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.